Good morning, Three Rivers Church. It is very good to be back in front of you again and open the scriptures together to teach God's word. And I'm very grateful for the opportunity. And just want to say to you guys, I'm exceptionally grateful for how you are handling this season and the good news of all the great stories of the things God is doing in our fellowship right now as you stay on mission, loving each other, loving your family, serving our city. It's a great testimony to the power of the gospel and the work of the Lord to keep his people on mission together in the middle of this difficult season. Today we're going to be studying from Genesis chapter 45 as we continue our study in Genesis. And our title today is Reconciliation through the providence of God. So we're going to ask our three key questions today as we study our passage. We're going to ask, what does the passage say? And in that question, we simply want to be able to restate the passage. We want to look at the text and see what the narrative is saying to us. Then we want to ask the second key question. And that question is, what does this passage teach us about God? And what does it teach us about man? And then the third key question we want to ask is, how do we apply this passage? And our application is, what do we need to believe? What do we need to know? And what do we need to do? And so this morning, as we ask the key question, what does the text say? I want to do a quick recap, and then we're going to have you read the passage, and then I'm going to talk through the passage, and we're going to work our way through our key questions. And note those questions are the questions that you ask as you gather as a family and as you gather as small groups. What does the text say? What does it tell us about God and man? And how do we make application to it? And so what does the text say? In recap, Judah has become the pledge of safety for Benjamin. In this glorious gospel tributary, Judah has become the one who will stand in the place of his brother's and he will be the one who makes the way for them by him becoming the pledge. He doesn't put up his sons as a pledge. He puts himself up as a pledge, as Jesus himself does. He himself comes and bears the penalty of sin. So Judah is one of those gospel tributaries we have seen in the passage. The brothers have returned, and Simeon, who was left behind as a pledge, until Benjamin was brought in, has been released to the brothers as they feast with Joseph. Joseph then feasts and sends them home, and he tests them one more time by sending them with food, provision for the journey, and this time he has his silver cup stashed in the sack of Benjamin and then sends his people after them to catch them to see how the brothers are going to respond. Joseph pretends like he will keep Benjamin when they come back because he was the one who looks like he took the cup and then he's going to send the others home. But Judah once again steps into Benjamin's place for his perceived sin and he pleads the case of his brothers before Joseph. And there is a gospel allusion and gospel tributary there. So what we'd like you to do right now is stop the video and we want you guys to read the passage together, and then we're going to come back, and I'm going to walk us through it and make some comment on it, and then we'll jump into our second key question, okay? So you guys read the passage now. Okay, 
Now, you guys have read the passage. Now, Genesis chapter 45. I'm going to look through the passage with you and make some comment as we're still answering our key question. What does the text say? Then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him. He cries out, make everybody leave. So Joseph, after this pleading by Judah, Joseph is moved to emotion and he has all the Egyptians leave and he's left in his house with his brothers. And in in fact, he is so emotionally moved that the Egyptians hear his loud crying out and he weeps. And verse three tells us, Joseph says to his brothers, it's me, Joseph. He reveals himself and all of these interactions, they haven't recognized him. His appearance has been so changed over this period of time that they don't recognize him. He knows who they are. They don't know who he is. And in this moment, he reveals himself. He says, I am Joseph. And his first question to them is, is my father still alive? Can you imagine he's been separated from his father so long? And his first question is, is dad still alive? And his brothers can't answer him. And it says they were dismayed at his presence. I would imagine I would be too. I can imagine their their mouths are wide open in absolute astonishment as he reveals, I am Joseph. So then Joseph says to his brothers, he tells them, come near to me. And he does an amazing thing for the next, basically, verse 5 through verse 9. He says to them, don't be distressed. Don't be stressed out over this. And he does this most amazing thing, and we will observe it in just a few minutes. He says, you sent me here. So don't be distressed about that because it's not just you. It was God who sent me here. And he makes four astounding theological statements about the providence of God to encourage his brothers not put them down. And then he's going to tell them in verse 9 through the rest of the section we're studying today through verse 15, chapter 45, 1 to 15. He's going to tell them, I want you to go get my father and bring the whole family down here. I'm going to put you in the best land, the land of Goshen. And you're going to bring the family down because there's still five years of famine left to go. Don't stress out about it. I'm going to take care of you. And by the way, just like the vision God gave him. God gave him a word and God has kept his word. And so he tells him, go get dad, get the family, all the animals, bring everybody down here. We're going to put you in the best of the land because there are five years of famine still to go. And I want to take care of you. And in this verse nine and verse 13, he tells them, you got to tell dad, God has raised me up to be in command in Egypt. And then he tells him again in verse 13, tell my father of my honor in Egypt. Now you stop here and think for a second. In all of their interactions with their dad, they haven't come completely clean as to what they've done. They have talked among themselves that God knows what we've done. That's why all this is coming on us. We are reaping what we have sown. But they hadn't sat down with Jacob and said, look, here's what we did. We beat him up. We tore off his cloak. We threw him in a pit. We put goat's blood on it and told you he's probably been told by some wild animal. But the truth is we sold him to some people and it looks like they've sold him in Egypt and he's still alive. They haven't done that yet. And Joseph is saying to them, won't you go tell dad what the Lord has done, that I am here. And if if I'm the brothers, I'm perhaps a little nervous about this interaction. We will look at that interaction next week. But they have to be thinking now we got to tell dad 
the truth. And then Joseph brings them near and he hugs Benjamin and he and Benjamin weep together. And then he brings all of his brothers near and he weeps on them and they weep together and they hug together and reconciliation takes place. So that's what the text says. Now, what does this text tell us about the nature of God and the nature of man? What does it teach us about God and man? I'm going to bring some observations for us. Number one, Joseph's four statements in verse 5, verse 7, verse 8, and verse 9, or Jacob's four statements about God's nature here in verse 5, 7, 8, and 9 provide for us a clear understanding of the providence of God through how Joseph puts these two juxtaposed ideas together in the text. Now, here's what I mean. Joseph says explicitly here, particularly uh, in verse 5, he says, you sold me here. And then he says this, but God sent me. And in that statement, Joseph makes clear how God works providentially. And we're going to look at that in our application a little bit more in just a moment. But we see clearly how God works in human history. Man's actions matter, but God's actions trump them. He said, you sold me, but God sent me. Verse 5, God sent me to preserve life. He states part of the purpose. God sent me here through your actions to preserve life. Not just the life of his family. He's going to state that in just a moment. But generally, saving life because God cares about humanity. So God sent Joseph to Egypt through his brothers because he cared about saving life. Verse 7, God sent me to preserve a remnant of our people. God was caring about people in general, but he was specifically caring about the line of Jacob that God promised through whom he would bring the one who would put an end to the curse that started in Genesis chapter 3. So God is being faithful to Jacob, to Isaac, and to Abraham, just like he promised. Verse 8, he says, it was not you, but God who sent me. Just in case it wasn't clear, Joseph says, I want you to be comforted. You sent me here, but it was God through you who sent me here. And then verse 9, he wants them to tell their father that God has made him capital L, Lord, or I'm sorry, little L, Lord, not capital L, Lord, little L, Lord, not Lord of the universe like Jesus is Lord, but Lord like one who sits over and is a steward of Lord over all of Egypt. In other words, it was God who was doing this in spite of the fact that his brothers played a role. Well, that leads me to ask this question. What do we understand through Joseph's statements about the providence of God? Well, number one, it teaches us that man's actions matter. My actions matter. Your actions matter. What we say matters. What we do matters. But it also teaches us that God's actions are ultimate, not ours. So our actions matter. In other words, it matters what we think and it matters what we do. We can't use the providence of God as an excuse to act poorly or to act irresponsibly. And we can't say that poor and irresponsible actions are acting in some manner of faith. Our actions matter. However, what we learn in this passage, though, is that God's actions are ultimate. Man is not sovereign. God is. We learn also that man can't stop the purposes of God. Man can only join God through Jesus by faith. There is no way 
that man can stop the purposes of God. Joseph's brother's actions in no way stopped God's purposes for Joseph and for Jacob, for Isaac and for Abraham. And then finally, we see that man can find himself pushing against the immovable hand of God. And that is an absolute lose-lose, but it can be turned in a moment of salvation by turning to Jesus. The brothers found themselves pushing against the immovable hand of God. It was not going to work for them. They could not stop the purposes of God. God intended to use Joseph as an instrument of salvation for them. And through their recognition of what God was doing, that turned into a moment of salvation for them. So we see that sometimes man can find himself pushing against the immovable hand of God. And that is an absolute lose-lose. But if man will turn and repent and follow the Lord, that moment of frustration and trying to push against the immovable hand of God can turn into a moment of salvation. This reminds me of Isaiah 46, 1 to 11. I encourage you to go read that passage, but particularly verse 8 through 11 is special. It's special for two reasons. It illustrates this point, but it's also for me a special passage because this is a passage God used to move me in the direction of working inside the church and doing ministry. As I was looking professionally to go one direction, I was pushing against this immutable, unchanging, sovereign hand of God because God set me apart for a purpose. And I was pushing against that. And this passage the Lord gave me to show me that pushing against the immovable hand of God is a futile task. And this is what the brothers were trying to do. And every action to cover up, God was uncovering because he had a purpose they couldn't stop. Listen to what Isaiah says to the people of Israel in verse 8 through 11. Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind. Verse 9, remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose, calling a bird of prey from the east and the man of my counsel from a far country. I have spoken and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed and I will do it. God even cause birds to fly in the air and they achieve his purpose. And so these brothers found themselves pushing against the immutable, unchanging, immovable hand of God. And that was a frustrating task, but it turned into a moment of salvation as they repented and followed the way God had for them. So that leads us to the second observation of asking the question, what does this passage teach us about God? What does it teach us about man? We learned this. Joseph then applies the providence of God to comfort his brothers in order that they would be reconciled. Joseph doesn't use this passage to beat them up. Joseph uses the truth of God's providence as a tool of comfort in order that he might be reconciled to his brothers. He says to them explicitly in verse 5, Do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. That's going to be very honest with you. When I read this passage, my heart went to, this is a chance to absolutely thrash them with your words. And as I read the passage, my heart is convicted because of how Joseph responded. Joseph would have been right to do 
Well, to be angry. Joseph would have been proper to be upset. Joseph likely could be justified in saying some pretty tough things to his brothers, but he doesn't do that. In fact, he sets for us the example of the gospel of reconciliation in Jesus not counting our sins against us because of his sacrificial work on the cross. Joseph shows us to Jesus here and shows us an example of what Jesus is going to be when Joseph looks at his brothers and says, do not be angry with yourselves. Don't be distressed. Joseph applies the providence of God to comfort his brothers that they might be reconciled. Jesus doesn't count our sin against us when he applies his work on the cross to us, when we believe by faith so that we would be reconciled to the Father. So we see a gospel tributary here as well. And in applying the providence of God to comfort his brothers to be reconciled, we learn some things. We learn that the providence of God is not merely a cold fact about God. The providence of God isn't just a cold doctrine separated from the work inside people. In fact, the providence of God is a warm truth that leads us to places of Sabbath and peace and reconciliation. We learn that the providence of God is a glorious comfort for those who follow Jesus. We learn that the providence of God is a call to be saved from sin's curse and enter into the Sabbath rest of God. We learn that the providence of God can if we will rest in it, silence all the, but what about this kind of questions. If we will simply rest in the providence of God, the what about this questions begin to fade away as we rest in Christ. And then the providence of God redeems our deepest hurts. Don't misunderstand. The providence of God does not excuse those who hurt intentionally and it doesn't ignore the reality of hurt. It does show us that God can turn those hurts to good, and it gives us that deep hope that he will. We also learn in this passage about God and man that knowing God works in this way, this is, this is the point, and, and it's a little verbose, but I couldn't think of another way to say it any clearer. Knowing that God works providentially is the way for us to forgive and to be reconciled to those who hurt us, or to be forgiven by those we have hurt and be reconciled back to them. Knowing that this is how, how God works is the way for us to forgive. When we recognize that everything that comes at me has been filtered through the grace of God in Christ, whether it has been hurt whether it has been ease or whether it has been abundance or whatever it may be in Christ, I can recognize its ultimate source as the Lord. And I recognize that for many people, that's hard to swallow because sometimes life has dealt us a difficult hand. And we're going to see this in the application in a few moments. But when we believe and know and live in the providence of God, it becomes the way that we can get rid of bitterness. We can get rid of misplaced anger, maybe as a way to say it. We can get rid of self-preservation in the sense that I've got to preserve myself from these people, and we can be released to forgive. We can be released to let go. We can be released to be reconciled, but it also becomes the way in which we can allow ourselves to repent for maybe sin we have committed against others 
and receive their forgiveness and be reconciled back to them. Alan Ross says this, reconciliation comes through forgiveness and forgiveness through the recognition of God's sovereignty. When we understand that it was God who was hemming these brothers in to bring them to repentance, we see God's love for his people and we have no place to hold on to bitterness or unforgiveness. When we understand it was God who was weaving together eternal purposes in Christ for his people, we can let go of hurts and we can forgive. When we understand it was God weaving together eternal purposes in Christ for his people, we can let go of our pride and repent, knowing that God can use even my sinful actions to do good to others in spite of me. And this is important. This kind of good can only come for those who are in Christ. The promise of Romans 8, 28 that says, And we know that in all things God works together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. That passage only applies to those who are in Christ. There is no promise that God is working for the good of those who are outside of Christ for their eternal salvation. God, in his general work of grace, blesses people who are outside of Christ because he loves humanity and his desires that everyone would repent and believe the gospel. But the specific and peculiar and particular application of the preserving good grace of God through difficult circumstances is only applied to those who repent and believe the good news. Therefore, there is an appeal in this passage to make sure we are in that stream of the people of God, that we have come underneath the providential grace of God through Jesus Christ. The final observation under the question, what does this passage teach us about God and man is this, that this work of reconciliation points us to the work of Jesus who goes before us. Now, now notice here something important that what I'm saying to us in this passage here is following the narrative story of Joseph, pointing to us the reality that this chapter in the Bible, these Passages that relate to us the story of Joseph, the historical narrative of the life of Joseph, are woven together by God to show us the work of Jesus. So notice in the pattern, not just the narrative of Joseph, but the specific work of Jesus. This is glorious. The work of reconciliation through the providential work of God points us to the work of Jesus who goes before us. Joseph went before them into Egypt. It takes our punishment Joseph took the punishment that his brothers deserved and does us good. Joseph blessed his brothers. Jesus does us good. It reveals our sin. The kindness of Joseph revealed the sin of his brothers. And it brings us to repentance. Joseph's brothers, through the good done, repented of sin. And it causes us to see him for who he is. When they repented, he was revealed to them and they saw him as Joseph. And then it restores us, not by beating us up, but by showing us good. Joseph didn't beat them up. He showed them good, and they were restored. Do you see the gospel woven into history? That is glorious. It's mysterious and something only God can pull off. That through the difficult circumstances of life and history, God was weaving the gospel into it. What a glorious reality. Our final question, how do we make application of this passage? What are some things we need to believe? What are some things we need to know? What are some things we need to do? Number one, I want to 
offer this invitation. If you're watching this and maybe you've clued into these recordings from Three Rivers Church and maybe you have never attended church before or maybe you've never been exposed to the gospel and maybe you've heard the good news of Jesus for the first time, maybe in a fresh way, maybe in a way that just for whatever reason, it is now effective. If you haven't turned to follow Jesus, I want to invite you to believe on the Lord Jesus. The book of Romans tells us that all those who believe in the Lord Jesus will be saved. And so put your trust in Jesus. Turn from the sin of unbelief. Believe in Jesus. And the Bible tells us that he will take you as a daughter and son of God, bring you into his family, and give you a whole new set of desires and beliefs. And if you believe the gospel for the first time, this is fresh for you. I just want to invite you to send me an email. and It'll be in the Post below this, Mitch at threeriversc.org, and would love to correspond with you about that and some next steps you can take. Second application is I want you to know that if you sin against others, God will not leave it alone. He will not let that go. He will work to make right and justice and even make reconciliation. Simply listen to his word and obey. Third, know that if we have been sinned against, God not only can, but he delights in and wants to turn it for good. So rest in that. Sabbath in that. That he can work it for good. Just a a note here that I think is very important. Joseph and the amount of time he spent here was over 10 years of difficulty waiting for this moment of reconciliation. For you and me, I'm a microwave culture kind of person. I want it yesterday. And sometimes in the providence of God, God works in years, not in weeks. That doesn't mean he can't work in weeks. That doesn't mean he doesn't work in weeks. But often we see that God works through periods of time longer than what I'm comfortable with. But know this, rest in this, that God can bring it to good. And in Joseph's case, he did it over a long period of time, and he may do that for us as well. So rest, trust, put your trust in the Lord, walk in his way, and let him work out the timing. Number four, God does reconcile people who will submit to his way. If we're struggling, waiting on the Lord to do that, know that God will reconcile people who will submit to his way of doing things. So stay in the scriptures, obey the scriptures. Number five, believe that if we rebel against God, it is like running full speed into an immovable object. Sin and rebellion never work out. When I wrote that down, I had this image in my mind of a picture in one of my high school yearbooks of a particular defensive back on our football team trying, attempting to make a tackle on a guy from Coosa High School named Eric Miller. Now, if you're watching this and you're in Rome, Georgia, and you're uh, quite a few years back, high school won't say how many years. You may remember Eric Miller when he ran. I'm pretty sure the ground shook and he was a brick wall. And when this particular defensive back who knows who he is, and if he's listening to this, don't be upset. I'm not going to say your name. But when he made contact, the picture was shot at just that moment, and it was almost as if he was crushed and crumpled under the brick wall of the ground-moving, ground-pounding Eric Miller. Running into that brick wall resulted in not too good of a thing. And although it's not equivalent, it provides a picture in my head of what happens when we try to move against the immovable God. 
So recognize that if we rebel against God, if we sin against God, it is like running full speed into an immovable object. It will not work out. So turn to the Lord's way. Turn to doing things His way. And it will go well and better for us in the long run. Number six, know that there's nothing man can do to stop the purposes of God. No, there's nothing that can stop God's eternal purposes in Christ for those who are in Christ. We need to be as a people of God, of people who let his word shape our belief and not maybe a cultural theology. And the reason I say that is because often this idea that nothing can stop the purposes of God seem to conflict with some of our experiences. Because we think, well, geez, this didn't happen in two weeks' time. God must not be in it. No. We must let the Scriptures dictate our theological understanding, not our cultural understanding of God. Just because it didn't happen in a framework that somehow I set up in my mind doesn't mean God's not doing it. In fact, the Bible tells us over and over again through its historical narrative that there's nothing that can happen on man's part to stop the purposes of God. So rest in that. Jesus will achieve all of his kingdom purposes, and we have sure success when we get in behind him and walk with him in his way. So rest in that. And finally, believe, believe with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength that God is in charge of every detail of your life, my life, and our life together in Christ on his mission on his mission and this is the this is the the words that came to mind as i thought on this application there is not a molecule in the air out of place not a single one there's not a speck of dust in the universe that's out of place he calls birds of prey from a far land and some generic man from another country to fulfill his purpose so that every speck of created order is right where it needs to be right now. Therefore, rest in Him. It may be hard, but that theological truth allows us to, I can obey today. I can do that today. So today, believe that He's in charge. Believe that He is working and believe that he is working for our good. That makes me want to worship. Let's pray together, and then we'll worship the Lord in song. Father, in Jesus' name, we ask that you would take your word and make it a lamp for our feet and a light for our path and help us to hide it deep in our hearts that we might not sin against you. Cause your word to create a framework of rest and trust and obedience that we would hear and we would obey, and that in that we could rest in you. Would you do that for your people? Advance the mission of Jesus and his kingdom in our city, our state, and in our world as we take these truths and make application of them. We believe not only you want to, but that you will. And so we want to come and worship you for all that you are, and we do that in Jesus' name. Amen.